You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. This podcast is entitled Eternity, and it is number 100. It was occasioned by a recent experience in which I was watching television, and I saw, and it was a complete surprise to me, someone whom I know very well involved in a particular professional situation. And I was really shocked and surprised because um, this uh, person is now very old and he was involved in a situation which was very much a harking back to uh, a situation he might have been involved in 40 years ago or 30 years ago or even 20 and yet there he was attempting to pull off the same particular action in a situation that was really, I guess we would use the uh, expression, out of joint. It's one thing to be involved in an activity when you're 35 or 45 or 55. It could be golf. It could be a performance. It can be some um, speech it can be any number of uh, possible um, actions. But to see the same performance conducted by the same person when he or she is 75 or 80 or 85 and cannot pull it off, that's really upsetting. And here was this uh, person um, bent over and obviously not really physically able to carry the role and yet trying so hard to duplicate an experience and a persona of long ago. And I was absolutely um, struck by this. And I've seen it in many people before. I see the elements in myself every day. I see it in uh, men who have held uh, high positions in the world's sight or in their own sight or in the institution's sight. And then they're, um, they retire and they're sort of adrift and they're shocked by the sudden uh, change of adulation and affirmation. And <clears throat> suddenly it appears that nobody wants them. 
and they then become really very uh, anxious, and they, they'll sort of take any invitation they receive. I've seen this again and again. I had a professor at college, a very uh, distinguished and prominent man in his field, <clears throat> but I knew him fairly near his retirement. <clears throat> and when he did retire... And I was able personally to follow him through about 20 years of his retirement, this professor. He was so eager, if not a German professor, by the way, someone in this country. And he was so hungry for the accolades that he had received for so many years that he would accept any lecture invitation he was given. He just was dying to have people do another, yet another Festschrift or collection of honoring essays in his honor explicitly. Or um, he was constantly rewriting old material to cycle it in or trying to publish a book uh, again that was really old material because he obviously was desperate and hungry for the affirmations of the office that he had officially laid down. And it was kind of pathetic because he was losing his hair and he was losing his teeth and he he was he was like a you know a puppet or a, a, a sort of a an animating marionette that that had lost its uh, force and so the thing became uh, more <clears throat> appalling like kabuki drama you know more appalling as the years went on and I think about the time the fourth festrift was being prepared I said to a former graduate student who was now himself old and gray. I said, why are we really doing this? And he said, well, you'd have to understand it's the only thing that so-and-so lives for. Well, I've seen it in professors. I've seen it in clergymen. I've seen it in people in business, heads of foundations. I've seen it in people who had uh, high positions in government. I uh, was uh, so struck by the um, uh, biography by Bishop George Bell of uh, Randall Davidson, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And uh, Bell, uh, who was a great uh, admirer of his former uh, boss, Randall Davidson wrote a remarkable biography, which in itself is more of a history of uh, English Christianity in the first part of the 20th century than it is really uh, ostensibly about Randall Davidson. But nevertheless, Bell was a little sheepish to report, but he did report it as it actually was, the extreme discomfort that Davidson had after he retired um, and gave over to the successor i think it was cosmo lang actually but uh, his uh, his extreme discomfort at uh, not being sought by statesmen and diplomats and uh, great leaders of uh, uh, men and nations uh, in england and here he was living in a house i think it was in the uh, uh, in, in near the Chiswick uh, Chain Walk, what is that area? You know where I'm talking about on the Thames in London. And he was uh, all of a sudden, no one was coming to see him, and he died. He just couldn't stand it. He just couldn't stand not being in the limelight, even at his advanced age. So my question is, uh, I, I see this, and I wonder what are what are these people? really doing? What are they trying to do? And I, I've seen it in myself. I've seen the, you know, the, you know, are you sort of waiting to be asked to do such and such? Or, you know, how many honorary degrees can you wish you got? Um, and uh, fortunately, none in this case. But I've known uh, men who stacked them up like the figure in uh, The Genius and the Goddess, the 1955 novel by Aldous Huxley, who keeps in his private safe, uh, along with all sorts of rather nasty items, his most private um, lares and panates. He keeps a, uh, 
the uh, medals that have been struck in his honor by various learned societies, which, as Huxley writes, are the rather um, paltry honors which a grateful world is supposed to give its uh, uh, those scientists and uh, uh, l'homme des affaires who have uh, most benefited it. And there's something so pathetic, and I've known so many people like this. So the phenomenon is what I'm interested in understanding with you. It's the tremendous reluctance that people have to really <clears throat> call a halt on their ego life. And this is what I'm really talking about. I'm really talking about life and death. I'm talking about what is life and what is death. And for, uh, I guess, all of us really, life consists of the interests being um, um, met and the interests being fulfilled of the ego. And this ego is a shallow, paltry, little, hungry, angry, entitled creature that is sniveling around and constantly looking behind its back and looking all over for whatever it believes it requires and needs for its survival, let alone its enhancing. And the older you get, it becomes more a matter of survival. You, you see this with people who are very ill. when they're If they haven't learned anything about the nature of living and the nature of the, of, the, of the genuine Damocles sword which hangs over the ego because the ego always dies. There are no exceptions to that. No one listening to Podcast 100 is out of reach of the, um, the, uh, the death of the, uh, of the ego. Remember this uh, New Yorker cartoon this week of two uh, death, there's, there are two uh, big feature creatures with scythes and the great long hood of the death as you see it in the ghost of Christmas future and Christmas Carol. And one of these death characters is saying to the other, oh, uh, it's really the hoodie that frightens them. And um, the, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, relentless and compulsive need to continue the old pattern of, of trying to prop up the ego, in this case that I've talked about with honors, it can be with sex, it can be with all sorts of different things, your golf game, but I'm particularly seeing it in people whom I know who <clears throat> seem to not uh, who seem to be living for invitations or uh, opportunities to shine in their 80s uh, that uh, really um, reveal, uh, especially when they become lame and stupid and silly. These aren't for income purposes. These are for tell me a story about how you adore me purposes. When you see that, uh, it's very um, disillusioning about otherwise great and terrific people, you thought. But obviously the ego is is fearing termination, so it's grabbing. And the older you get and the more feeble your body becomes, the more upsetting it appears. You know, this is the Gloria Swanson kind of thing in uh, Sunset Boulevard. Well, um, the uh, it, it, it made me think about the nature of death and the nature of life. And I will quote you a, um, a little quote about the alternative to it. And then I'll, I'll um, bring this down to a, a few lines in a poem that I used to run from, but I now see is the truth. And it's a truth to be dealt with not by means of uh, courage although yes, acceptance, but also points us, I think, in the direction of what actually is uh, the meaning of eternal life. And that's why this podcast is entitled Eternity. Huxley, uh, on page 14 of The Genius and the Goddess, and this is a quotation I've not used before in a podcast, describes someone named Helen. 
It helps to have seen someone who really knew how to live and how to die. Helen knew how to die because she knew how to live, to live now and here and for the greater glory of God. And that necessarily entails dying to there and then and tomorrow and one's own miserable little self. In the process of living as one ought to live, Helen had been dying by daily installments. When the final reckoning came, there was practically nothing to pay. Whoa. Now, that's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. And when I see so many of my old, um, whatever the word is, uh, comrades in arms, uh, old and young, hanging on, grabbing on, desperate, really, whether it's looks, but in this case, it's usually some form of publicly approbated um, profile. I think of Helen in the genius and the goddess who died daily and therefore when it finally came because these these men uh, as i see it are really uh, postponing that um essential move in an older person's life in any life of getting to one's prayers or going down to one's knees get thee to thine orisons as i've often said claudius in uh Hamlet, who touches his uh, proposed or punitive murderer, or what would Abba say, his potential murderer, uh, with his incomprehensible, whatever it is, scarcity of Abba. Uh, but uh, Hamlet is actually touched when he sees uh, Claudius's uh, deep uh, desire to go to God, to look in an eternal perspective on his life, uh, this man who murdered for adulterous love. And uh, Hamlet is actually touched by that and does not slay his stepfather on the spot. Well, I'm touched by it, but I really see it. I really see it. Now, there may be that these men are in dialogue, and of course, they. I hope they are, but the, the, the constant popping up of these various people, and as I said the other day, it was on the television, it can be old actors, uh, reveals that at one level, you want to say, why, why, why are you doing this? I was thinking, by the way, of, uh, there's a f- famous writer in Germany who recently, uh, a very fine writer, I think, and recently uh, a very world-acclaimed writer who recently wrote a controversial poem. And whatever one thinks about what he said in the poem, I was um, struck by, uh, I was remembering what uh, James Gould Cousins had said about Aldous Huxley's last novel. And Huxley's last novel was reviewed by Cousins privately in his journals, Cousins who loved Huxley and who had been influenced by Huxley and who believed Huxley with Maugham and Galsworthy was among the great stylists of the last century. And he said, after reading Huxley's last novel, he said, you know, this proves never uh, publish a novel when you're 80. Uh, Whatever you think of the last novel, why are you doing this? And I, I kept wanting to, the only word I would have had to this famous European poet, I would have wanted to say, why did you publish this poem? I mean, what did you, th- why were you needing to publish the poem? Writing it is one thing um, and feeling just, you know, angry about a certain subject or, you know, self-righteous, indignant, indignant is the word about a certain subject, um, not weighing the merits of the subject. Why did you feel you needed to write this at your age? Why not just uh, stay put? 
Put it in your private papers. Put it away like the tempest. But um, is this? Uh, I, I conjecture because I see this. You know, I'm. You know, I know about looking for the mail for invitations, and and uh, you know, I was recently sounded out for a job somewhere, and uh, um, I said no. But I was immediately surprised that I even entertained the thought, given everything I've been thinking. And uh, I was reminded by a friend of a poem that I think probably has something to offer us here about the um, the sort of motivation behind uh, <clears throat> the 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 relentless need to prop up the ego in the face of of death and uh, it's some lines from a poem by Philip Larkin I won't be a lit crit person I won't talk about Philip Larkin you can look him up and you know this poem it's a famous poem and uh, it's a, a poem of of great penetration but the lines that my friend uh, offered me were these Quote, the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in all ways, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. And um, this uh, was uh, seen as a kind of uh, putting the brakes on the Easter hope, which could be seen, and I well understand it, as a kind of wish. You know, oh, I wish that the person who's living in my skin, that I, the only person I really know who acts and talks and gets up in the morning, I wish that I could live after this uh, obvious 100% mortality rate that is going one of these days to kick in and affect me. And therefore, I sit in a service and I wonder to myself whether it's all kind of wishful thinking and a fabulous hocus pocus. Well, I've had those thoughts too. I used to have those thoughts very much in relationship to Rudolf Bultmann's um, essay in 1941 about the entmythologisierung of the New Testament, the uh, demythologization of the life of Christ. And I thought to myself, my golly, you know, I've, I've relied on some of this material as a kind of hope that uh, this uh, paltry self can actually continue after death. And I realize now that um, in a way, when I ran screaming from the room, very uncomfortable with Larkin, I was really, I was the wrong person. I mean, I have to distinguish between the different people who are being addressed. The person to whom Larkin's words are meaningful deserves to die, or no, let me rather put it that way, is going to die. Let me not give a weighting of it, pro or con. Let me just say it is a reality that the person to whom Larkin's words about the most terrible thing, nothing more terrible than not to be here, not to be anywhere and soon. Those are, in fact, true words to the ego. The ego, the I, he will, you know, lie moldering in the grave, the place where I'm going to be buried, which is hopefully a long time from now. But nevertheless, they're doing roadwork all around it, and they have been major roadwork. I mean, like a major highway <laughs> has been... And the, and the thing is, the poor cemetery, which was once a place of absolutely rural, bucolic, heavenly serenity on a lake, is now, you know, there's a four-lane highway abutting the oldest graves. I mean, like right there. There's not even a wall. There will be a wall, but there's something so funny about the lack of serenity of this place that everybody 
where I live, you know, saw it as sort of the, the, the resting place of the serene sublime. And now it's a, there's a Walgreens or a CVS. I think it's a Walgreens directly opposite uh, with this four lane highway uh, right pounding over the graves. You know, any day someone's going to, a ghostly figure is going to say, stop. But um, the that place is there and a place has been appointed. I'm going to die and you are too. And so Paul Zoll, put him in quotes, is going to die. And as Huxley said, I think also quite penetratingly in his very fine novel, um, which is dated about half and about another half of it will never date, entitled After Many a Summer Dies the Swan, a very unwieldy and unfortunate title. I keep forgetting the title. But After Many a Summer Dies the Swan, when he talks about poor old Pete, the young man who died in an untimely way, and the lead character, a very fine, thoughtful person, says, well, you know, poor Pete doesn't really exist anymore. Paul Zoll, in the sense that I know him, that I'm acquainted with him, isn't going to exist after I die. That ego will die, and Philip Larkin is right to speak that way. And this brings me to um, something else, then. You see, if you let that um, uh, truth uh, be welcomed, you know, not... um, what uh, Didn't uh, St. Francis get this? Didn't he speak of this, uh, oh, brother death? If you let the ego uh, understand that death is, in fact, for the ego, for, quote, Paul Zoll or whoever, that death is a welcome uh, and actual real thing, then you can give up that ego, and whatever lies beyond the ego, and a great deal does lie beyond the ego, can be embraced, accepted, and affirmed, and and, um, participated with. That's not the right word. Uh, Can be connected with. Even that word sounds awfully current but can you you, you can you can uh, f- find yourself uh, coming into very merciful contact with that which is universal i was looking at a wonderful photograph recently taken of a grandchild of ours a granddaughter and you could just look at this child and uh, see through the eyes that which is eternal, that which is godlike, or that which the Spirit of God, the image of God. Remember, these are not pantheistic uh, statements. Uh, he said that we were created in the image of God, and the image of God created I, him, and her. And when I look at this particular picture, I see coming out of the eyes of this tiny little child that which is the image of God. And it's above and beyond the person who is now in formation at a very early stage, and that's a terribly important developing person there. But the the person that comes through the eyes is the eternal. It's the Thomas Cole person in the, the stages of life, the river of life, the four stages in the... Um, uh, National Gallery in uh, Washington. It's the uh, person that comes through when you fall in love with them. It's that which is eternal, which connects you, that vital electricity that you can experience very powerfully in the sexual factor in human existence, which is why people see it in such divine and holy and reverential terms. They just do. Just listen to Abba. Lay all your love on me as a hymn, to really a hymn. It's not just a uh, an analogy of a hymn. It is a hymn and was designed to be by its creators <clears throat> something very closely approaching 
a, a the natural man's hymn, but all sorts of other things. When I see this relentless desire for further awards, and I've saw, I saw it so much in one man early in my ministry, a very distinguished attorney, and uh, quote distinguished, and the, his need to have medals struck in his honor, his need to receive to have more and more black tie dinners in his honor, uh, and he was a very old man. I could not, you know, I just what is going on? Well, I suspect it was the ego was was in tremendous response and reaction to termination. And these are, you might say, kind of temporary putting your finger in the dike of something that can inevitably will only um, uh, completely overwhelm you. And that is the death of which Philip Larkin was speaking. Let me add two points and then I'll finish. I was so, um, uh, uh, years ago, I preached a sermon some of you may remember it. It was on a Good Friday. <clears throat> I, I don't remember when it was. I, I honestly do not remember when the Friday it was, but I think it's um, people have it downloadable. And it, I just preached a sermon on Good Friday, and I said to myself <clears throat> as I got up in the pulpit at, uh, in Birmingham, um, preach this, make this a Good Friday sermon. That is to say, um, don't bring in any false hope for the ego, but allow the egos of the people, including yourself, most of all, you, Paul, the speaker, allow yourself to connect or be wrapped up completely in the end of all that you've ever wanted and been, all the hopes you've had, all the desires you've had, all the hopes for your children, all the hopes for your marriage, all the hopes for your love life, all the hopes for your you know, ministry, all the hopes for anything that you really want. Um, uh, put them away. Put them, count them as dead. Actually count them as dead. Don't just say that you count them as dead, but get up there and pull the curtain, the tightest, darkest possible, thickest curtain you can over anything you've ever hungered for and wanted. And I didn't know at the time that that was all the ego wishes that I had. And speak as someone who, who really has, uh, has, uh, uh, has had to internalize uh, Philip Larkin's uh, nothing more terrible, nothing more true. And I sort of brought everyone, I, apparently, in that relatively short, I think it was about a 30-minute sermon, into the place of the complete extinction of which Philip Larkin speaks. And uh, what seems to have happened there is the uh, people actually al were allowed to die to all the different things. The place happened to be full that day. And I've never received more continuing feedback on a talk than on that Good Friday sermon. And it was only because I myself was able, I was able in my own inner self to to somehow perform the kind of mental slash emotional trick of drawing a curtain over all the hopes and dreams of all the years and really um, paint myself into a box canyon in a corner from which there was no way out. This, by the way, when I saw it, it was really that experience that um, committed me to uh, believing that the Easter vigil in Episcopal churches was really a kind of a form of denial. Now, I've talked about that, and I'm not going to get on a hobby horse, and you may say I could care less about the liturgical uh, vagaries of current Episcopalianism, but it, it's actually quite important, or it's reflective of something, because this tremendous... Uh, overwhelming now tide of services, which can be as early as five o'clock now on what used to be called Easter Eve, but is now usually called Holy Saturday. <clears throat> These services, which are a borrowing from orthodoxy, that is Eastern Orthodoxy and Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Mount Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery, and they have a power when they're performed by Greek Orthodox priests and 
so robed with beards in darkened Middle Eastern churches. For some reason, it works. But for us um, in this tradition, it always seemed a little like a, a, a artificial. But even there, that's not why to just because it's artificial or imported doesn't mean it couldn't be good. I realized that it it, it reflected this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The Lord is risen at five o'clock on Easter. Sort of. I think it kind of. Uh, and by the way, there are almost no parishes now that don't do it. There are a few, and those that do it, as soon as the current rector, who gallantly has um, resisted the Easter Vigil against all sorts of criticisms in his parish, as soon as that person leaves, I can guarantee I, I will lay odds with the bookmaker, five to one, that the parish will uh, <coughs> institute an Easter Vigil. But why am I uh, opposed to that? Because it reflects a tremendous um, resistance to the ego's dying. Because um, Easter, you see, can be used in service of the ego. That's why when people say it sounds a little like a fable, or I have this deep sense that maybe the the whole thing is kind of a a, a falsehood, uh, people will sometimes say. And I understand that, by the way. I've often thought that. I used to think that when I read Willy Markson's once famous book in New Testament scholarship, which sort of was trying to disprove from a Christian or a Protestant German academic theological point of view, uh, Herr Markson's book on the resurrection, kind of trying to disprove it textually and even philosophically. And I thought to myself, ooh. But now um, I see that what could be being disproven, not the facts, as it were, not the historical facts, because something remarkable happened. And I fully accept that, by the way. I'm counting on that. But from a different angle, I'm sort of uh, the, the, what is um, Jimi Hendrix? There must be some way out of here, said the Joker to the, I, I think that's the line in the, all along the watchtower, something like that. There must be some way out of here. The ego is looking to Easter as a way to perpetuate its interests, primarily survival. The power of Easter is the death of death in the death of Christ, which is a Puritan expression. I can't believe I'm quoting from John Owen, but let's give good its due anywhere it is. The death of death and the death of Christ. I'm looking for the ego, which is so hungry and needs all these awards or these invitations or these accolades or these new experiences or whatever I need. Um, The the, the ego is looking for a way out, and the Christian story could be used at Easter as a kind of way out for the ego to believe mentally that it could be resuscitated or reanimated. And that's not what we're talking about at all. I mean, Christ's body was not recognized. He vouchsafed at least two, maybe three moments of recognition, four, I think, four moments of actual recognition. Uh, but uh, uh, he vouchsafed them. The people who saw him and talked to him had no idea it was him. He was in a very different twilight zone than the person that they had known, the person who was still involved in some form of ego existence. He was not at all recognizable unless he himself chose to make himself known to Mary and others. Uh, Now, that's important. So the uh, Easter Vigil seems to me, at least, to slot into kind of a a, a bogus um, enthusiasm in the service of a denial. I've been involved in so many of these services, by the way. I've been to so many Easter vigils, and I just want to say, let's go home, and what is that song by uh, Ray Charles? Let's go get stoned, but let's go get stoned. Well, that's a great song, or maybe it, did he sing it? Anyway, um, you can tell me uh, that is really let, let's let the stone wall of the Good Friday moment 
stay. So the ego can die. And then the new life, which I saw in my granddaughter's eyes, and I've seen it in all sorts of other situations, and I continue to see it shining through uh, in tremendous opposition to this ego-grasping alien life form, which is constantly crunching down on life, you know, like those people who are, you know, uh, holding on to something and they're falling and you hear their um, nails, you know, scraping against the blackboard as they gradually fall across over the precipice. That person's got to die. Well, thank you for um, listening to this 100th uh, podcast. And uh, eternity is uh, the life of the new being, what... um, that's the new creation, as the New Testament refers to it. We could call it the true and final, lasting self, who in a sense was never born and uh, in a very real way is never leaving, as Jakob Burma said to, to the question, where do we go when we, where does a soul go when we die physically? And Burma said, uh, uh, there is no need for it to go anywhere. I find that quite profound and I want to hold on to it. And uh, I leave uh, the eternity with you in the form of a most unusual and ambiguous song by the geniuses Jeff Goddard, who sang, performed, and wrote the song, and Joe Meek, who produced the song, this song entitled Eternity, which seems in my mind to combine the most powerful longing of the of that which is eternal, to connect with that which is eternal, which is love, and yet at the same time the astonishing, and you'll hear it, dramatic fear of the ego, which is rightly confronted with it's not going to be here, not going to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible. Welcome. Happy morning. Thank you.